is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this podcast, the concluding part of our interview with Kevin McLeod from Channel 4's Grand Designs. Why XJR15 got Richard West into trouble at TWR, plus a crucial survey that we need you to take part in to safeguard the future of the classic car world. JECpodcast.com Hiya, welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast on the week before pubs, cafes and restaurants reopen after the pandemic lockdown in England. Hope you're well and still managing to enjoy a bit of the summer weather with your Jaguars. Now, whilst lockdown might be easing, there are still severe restrictions in place regarding public gatherings. So we've put together a handy set of updates that are constantly reviewed and refreshed for you over at jc.org.uk. You can find our coronavirus updates page there for all you need to know. Also, don't forget our virtual Jaguar Festival continues to run via jcpodcast.com. And this week... Voting opened for our virtual Concourse d'Elegance. Now, it's just for fun. It's just a little bit of a laugh. So go and take a look while you're listening to this episode of the podcast and cast your vote for your favourite car. It's your favourite car, not the best photos. It's not a photographic competition. But go over there and uh, have a look through some of the entries and cast your vote on the form at the bottom of the page. You can find it from the menu bar at jcpodcast.com. Just click Virtual Festival and follow the buttons to the Virtual Concours. Now, those of you who read your Friday Spotlight email would have seen the invitation on there to take part in the National Historic Vehicle Survey. Well, now we're joined by Paul Chasney from the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs. They're no stranger to the podcast. Uh, We spoke to David Well, the chairman, uh, earlier on in the series on these podcasts about the work that they're doing on E10 fuels. Now, something really, really important that Paul is going to tell us about to do with research. Uh, Firstly, welcome to the podcast, Paul Chasney. Hello, Wayne. Good to talk to you. Paul, it's been very, very busy times getting the National Historic Vehicle Survey not only ready to go, but also telling everyone about it. So before we go into this year's survey, give us a bit of background on the past surveys, what they've shown, and how often they take place. Well, Wayne, over the last, uh, oh, it must be 15 years or so now, the Federation has undertaken every five years Uh, a fairly substantial survey. Uh, And of course, it's become slightly easier more recently because we've been able to use the internet and um, and more computer-based technology to to pull together results. But the important thing is that we're trying to to demonstrate to people how important the, the whole sector of historic vehicles is and how much is spent um, and then, so the last survey we did was in 2016, and you can see from that um, that, that the um, the whole movement is worth around about five and a half billion pounds to the national economy every year, um, and that's a whole combination of people uh, spending money on their vehicles. Um, Bettling the vehicles, maintaining them, restoring them, but also taking them to events and that sort of thing. So it's a it's a big industry. We also know that in in 2016 
there was a bit over a million uh, historic vehicles registered with the DVLA. Uh, it was actually just about a million and forty thousand. Um, this is really secret information, you understand, because it's not been published yet. But uh, our, the work I've been doing in the last few weeks, uh, we now know that vehicles over 30 years old, so our definition of historic, uh, there's just about one and a half million now. So it's quite a few since we did the last survey based on data in 2015. And... Um, so it, it is an important part of the economy altogether. Um, and of course, there's quite a bit in, in employment as well. I, I know you're aware, Wayne, but perhaps some of your listeners won't be, that there's something like 34,000 people directly involved in the historic vehicle industry. So it's those sorts of facts that we're now trying to uh, to check and to update. And fundamentally, this gives you, as the FBHVC, the tools to fight and argue on all of our behalves doesn't it because basically you have to go into parliament and and talk to government about various subjects for example um, mot exemptions or e10 fuel which has been a hot topic very recently and when those people turn around to you and say well who is this sector of people that you're representing this data is absolutely crucial in convincing them that it is a big community that you speak on behalf of isn't it Absolutely. And the critical bit is that nobody else does this sort of comprehensive uh, survey. So there's nothing better than going and speaking to politicians uh, than having a few facts up your sleeve and be able to demonstrate that what you say is actually uh, the truth. Um, so doing this sort of survey is absolutely critical for our credibility in terms of saying to government, hey, look, do you know that there's half a million uh, historic vehicle owners out there um, and you'll be affecting them if you do something silly about uh, historic vehicles, for example? And, of course, it does reflect the changes that we're seeing in the historic vehicle community and, and it gives us tools to advise clubs and advise other people on how they adapt to those changes that are coming. And you mentioned there already the data on cars that are um, 30 years old and the increase in those on the roads as classed as historic. And that may well bring with it a different audience that we all need to sort of understand and, uh, and I guess, adapt to as well. I, I think that's important. And um, I suppose if there's a problem with us using more computer technology, it is that perhaps some of our older uh, owners uh, are perhaps not familiar with the computer technology and the internet and so getting information from them about what they what they do how they use their vehicles and what they spend on them is is actually quite difficult but i hope with the uh, the listeners that we're talking to now uh, we'll be able to log on to our website um, pick up the survey and complete it quite easily um, and and Last time, uh, that is in 2016, uh, we had about 11,000 individuals who completed the survey. Um, I mean, we've spoken about this, haven't we? It would be great if we could get maybe 20,000 this time because to a certain extent, the more people we get involved, the wider the spread and the better representation we get of, of the real impact uh, of the movement. Um, and of course, it's particularly important for some of the some of the smaller areas. 
just about 50% of the historic vehicles are cars. A bit of a given, I suppose. And something like 30%, 29 maybe, are, are motorcycles. But there's all the agricultural tractors, heavy goods vehicles, steam, military vehicles, a raft of others that people sometimes rather forget. And it's important that we get those people uh, partaking in the survey um, and, and telling us about what they're doing and what's important to them. Because without us getting the information from the owners uh, and enthusiasts, um, we don't know what people think. Paul, there are some significant challenges coming for the historic vehicle community, isn't there? No matter what you drive or ride or ride on, um, how do you see this survey and this data helping us in the future? Now, going forward, I think it's particularly important because the emissions side of life seems to have sprung to the fore. Um, I think we've all seen how uh, the, the pollution levels in the environment have reduced because there's been less uh, motor traffic on the road. Um, and one of my big fears is that as, we, as vehicles are brought back onto the road, um, th there will be more controls. Uh, I think we're already seeing that government are keen to get electric vehicles into city centres more. Um, what we must be very, very careful of is in using these broad brush approaches to very important things, keeping the environment suitable for us to live in, um, but using uh, or doing it in such a way that historic vehicles that frankly don't create a lot of, public, uh, of pollution because there's not so many of them and they don't go that far on average. You know, we need to demonstrate to people that please don't mess with historic vehicles because they're not the problem that you're trying to solve. Just describe for us how we can all contribute to this vital survey, a survey that uh, certainly is there to protect our freedoms to use the cars we love on the road for the future. So how can we take part in it? How do we do it? How long does it take? How easy is it? <laughs> well, first of all, it's really easy. It's uh, an online survey. Um, once you're into it, the questions are all pretty obvious to follow and you can click through the whole thing probably in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes if you've, if you've multiple vehicles because it allows for people to put information about up to uh, five historic vehicles and, and a couple of young timers for those who are interested in, in 20 to 30-year-old vehicles that will in due course become historic. So doing it is pretty straightforward, doesn't take a lot of time. Getting to it isn't that difficult either. Uh, simplest way is to log on to the Federation website, fbhvc.co.uk, and there's a direct link from there. Click on that link and it takes you straight into the survey. So it's not at all difficult. You haven't got to remember a great long uh, uh, URL address or anything. Just click on fbhvc.co.uk and follow the link from there. Brilliant. And uh, we will also put links in the description part of this podcast to that survey as well. So you can quickly link from the podcast page to go and find it. And uh, can't stress how important it is for you to take part and to contribute your little bit to the information that the FBHVC need 
to fight on our behalf for our freedoms to use the roads unhindered with our historic vehicles. Paul Chasney from the FBHVC, thanks for joining us. Memories of Motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West is back with another memory from a lifetime in motorsport. This week, he shares his personal recollection of the XJR15 and how it got him into a lot of trouble at TWR. One of the things that gets talked about so often in in, uh, in Jaguar forums and events and regional talks is tell us more about the XJR15 program. And of course, oh, what can I really say? I mean, XJ220 was a masterpiece of design and a beautiful car that came at a time when obviously there were difficult financial circumstances and of course it was never really meant to be a v6 was it it was meant to be the v12 and tom always hankered after a very spectacular road car and he absolutely adored the v12 whenever you got with tom and you talked about you know what alan scott and his team with charlie bamber had done with the v12 you could see tom's eyes light up and I think the com- one of the guys really we need to talk to at some stage is Andy Morrison because Andy was in charge of um, TWR Special Operations and Andy was always looking for projects that were different and things. And I think, I can't swear to this, but I think the conversation came out of he and Tom one night talking about the ultimate road car. And they were standing by the side of one of these wonderful, you know, composite tubs of the race cars, the um, series of sports cars. And Tom said, you know, we need something like this as a road car. And of course, what actually happened was Tom being as commercially astute as he was, he gave Andy the green light to go away and start, you know, getting this project into some form of reality. And with Peter Stevens, the designer behind him, Andy started coming up with some of these, or Peter came up with some of these amazing sketches of what the car could look like. And before we knew it, one of the little industrial units opposite the main office on the Kidlington Industrial Estate, which was Andy's special vehicle operations, he said to me one evening, come over and take a look at this. And I walked in and there was this beautiful looking carbon monocoque with carbon bodywork on it and a V12 hanging out the back. And my first impressions was, I said, Jesus, you know, what we got here? New, new sports car regulations. And he said to me, no, this is, this is Tom's, you know, super duper road car concept um, that is going to be all carbon composite and here we go and at the time there was an arm that there's so much history and mystique around xjr15 but the car was originally designated r9r and there was a lot of press interest in it we took some photographs of the first car that was actually painted at a studio in london i made a very fatal error which i'll put my hand up to you know i I leaked a photograph of the car, which is a bad admission, really, because one should never do it. But I leaked a photograph of the car, and I think it was Autocar magazine at the time. And Tom came in and almost, you know, (laughs) beat me to death with a copy of it because I'd forgotten that the car had an R9R badge on the front of it. And it created a lot of tension between ourselves and Jaguar at the time because clearly the project had gone ahead without total approval from Coventry and from that the R9R became XJR15 which became the Intercontinental Challenge because I I think looking back it probably did have an impact 
on the relationship between you know ourselves and Tom and Jaguar. It was it was papered over quite well, and I think after a while people realised both within Jaguar and TWR that it was such a remarkable vehicle that it really did do the Jaguar brand, the power, and the Jaguar Sport brand a power of good. But it came about at a time when half a million pound road cars were unheard of, you know, and I do remember, I, I spoke to Ron Dennis about his F1 car and um, the original three-seater. He called me out of the blue and said, you know, we're, we're building this amazing car again with Peter Stevens, but it's got three seats and Crichton Brown, one of the former directors of McLaren was involved in that project as well in the McLaren road car side with Gordon Murray and Peter Stevens. And he said, you know, what are you guys going to be asking for the XJR15? And I said, Tom's told me it's half a million pounds, a car. And he said, you really think the market can withstand that sort of money? And I said, well, listen, this is what we're going to market them for. And once the car was announced, um, I was dispatched off to Japan where there were uh, a couple of European guys who were representing the XJR15 for sale in Japan. And in a very short time frame, you know, we had firm orders coming in for that car. And suddenly the half million pound supercar dream was born. And the only man that has ever driven and tested every single one of those cars is Andy Morrison. And Andy and Peter, you know, were the driving forces behind that program. And it would be fascinating to get Andy's views because, you know, I think I'm right in saying was it 50 cars were produced? I really would have to go back and check my records, but I know that Andy test drove every single one. And my experience of one was that there was one parked up one day on the Kidlington estate and it had one of Tom's private plates on it, Tom four. And as I came out of my little office, the opposite side to the head office, Tom beckoned me over. He said, come on, promo. He said, I'll take you out and buy you a sandwich. And I said, in what? He said, in the 15, of course. And there it was with Tom four, the number plate. And I can't possibly admit to what we did, but it was the fastest I'd ever been around a country lane. And the thing was just electric. It sounded fantastic. It it took a, a real driver to get on top of it because I think as Andy Wallace said at the Blenheim event, it was a it was effectively a group C car, but with no rear downforce. So the thing was incredibly twitchy. And uh, it was just an amazing, amazing project. And it was a typical piece of Tom's ingenuity and skill at taking something from the racing world and putting it into a road car. And for a while, they were hugely desirable. They then sort of went off the boil, you know, another recession came and went. But of course now, XJR15s are highly, highly desirable. And for those of those few people in the world that are lo lucky enough to own one, they truly are a classic piece of TWR Jaguar Sport history. And I can only ever see them going up and up in price as the future unfolds. Master, masterpiece of Tom's ingenuity and also a masterpiece of Peter Stevens' design and Andy Morrison's tenacity in getting those cars to the market. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. More of your technical questions answered on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast now. And joining me once again in very warm surroundings, no doubt, is Andy Waters. How hot is it in your workshop now, Andy? <laughs> Hi, Wayne. Uh, we're, we're actually keeping it reasonably comfortable. And Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar is here as well. Hi, Wayne. 
Well, we are recording this in a very hot June day at the moment, and summer seems to have arrived in the UK. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably raining and cold again, and this seems like a million miles away. But uh, at the moment, it's quite hot and sticky, so wherever you are, I hope you're out in your Jaguars enjoying it. And if you're not, and maybe you've got a uh, technical issue, well, then you need to get in touch with us, and uh, we can help you, just like Colin Bishop did, who has an E-Type. Yes, I've got a... V12 E-Type drop head, uh, 1972, um, low mileage. My problem now is that um, the car runs well but has been cutting out when I have to stop, say, for example, at traffic lights. Um, and I wondered if you could advise me why, it, why this might happen. Uh, thank you very much. Andy, what do you think to this one? Is a uh, all sorts of range of things it could be really, but where would you start? It's again there is a lack of information for something like this to be able to be uh, guesstimated at sort of potential issues. But let's let's try and throw a few across the uh, table, and hopefully something there helps. The, we don't know if the car's an automatic or a manual because uh, there, there is even a potential due to age, not mileage, there is a potential that maybe the gearbox has probably never been serviced and isn't dropping down its gears fast enough, dropping down at first just before it pulls up. That could potentially be an issue. Uh, but I would lean, if it's come in as a sort of suddenly started doing this issue i would probably lean more towards an air leak which again could be created from many areas a pipe a gasket even a brake servo that's leaking air past can draw too much from the inlet manifold area we've had it before and it, it was on a Bristol of all times, and it was pulling the air from the rear two cylinders uh, more than it should. So those cylinders at a junction, when he'd got his foot on the brakes, couldn't get the fuel. So that's how critical it is with air leaks not being there to uh, give the balance in the inlet manifold that's needed. The other issue, as we know, the four carburettors being a V12, the Strombergs, only got to have a diaphragm that's decided to uh, perish through, again, not mileage or use, but age. That could throw the carbs straight out of balance and, again, could give him the issues of stalling. There's, there's many, many little sort of things that could create this irritating issue we he says it's running well other than this item but i have come across before now v12s and even straight sixes but let's say v12s one i can think of recently the owner thought it was running well uh it had been in the workshop for a couple of other things but we didn't push for other work so we only ever did what we were asked and finally came in for a tune the customer now says that car is running well running like it's never run before so they might believe it's running well but potentially it needs setting up across the board 
Okay, so uh, in essence then, more information needed and uh, tallies with uh, David Marks, of course, also on our panel here on the JC podcast. And he had a whole list of questions there that uh, that uh, match Andy's as well. So uh, probably the best thing to do is, if you're listening and have the same problem, to get in touch with us and we'll put you in touch with our panel directly so you can tell them a little bit more information. But essentially, uh, if you you might get lucky and you might get a quick fix repair by checking the ignition timing also checking for air leaks split diaphragms in the carburetors uh, that the idle speed uh, remains the same when hot and all of those things that andy's just mentioned there hopefully that has given you somewhere to look as we continue to answer your technical questions here on the jc podcast Ken Morrison asks, I'm just finishing the restoration of my 1960s S-Type and have tastefully upgraded things where necessary to make it reliable for continental touring. In particular, I'm keen to drive the Alpine Passes. I don't blame you, it'd be good fun. My question is though, what brake upgrade should I consider for the car given that I'm heavily loaded as well? Are there any common or period upgrades for the brakes? 1960s S-Type, Tom. Cool. So David, again, has been a huge help with this one. He's given some really great points for this, actually. So um, this vehicle have the IRS rear axle fitted as standard. Um, but from what I understand, it's actually best to upgrade to the 420 rear brake system as we'll have a complete girling brake system all around on the vehicle. Now, as for the front on the S-Type, it is an improvement over the original Mark II system, but still not as good as the 420. So the best solution for both steering and brakes is to fit the entire front end from the Jaguar 420 as the car has better brake calipers from factory and therefore efficiency coupled with a vastly improved and more reliable uh, variomatic power steering box. So finding such system these days is not easy but worth spending the time and money to do so as it solves so many drivability issues all in one go. Use two new brake flexes on that one as well when you replace that. And also just another couple of extra points to add is to reduce the risk of brake fluid boil, use DOT 5.1 fluid, um, and also maybe consider upgrading the pads and carefully consider what you do with the brake master and servo systems. Now, just to replace them may not be the best idea as some after I, aftermarket items can cause their own problems. So maybe get your original ones over overhauled by a good reconditioning service. Um, and also ensure that the brake fluid level sensor is working correctly. And finally, just a, another good point is to make sure you've got a good set of tyres or, or even a new set just for the trip. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. And we'll let you dash off now to get on with more race car preparation. But Andy, bring us up to speed because we like to have a bit of a nose round your workshop while we've got you. What's, what's in at CBR Classic Restorations at the moment? We've got a Mustang convertible just arrived and we've got uh, a lightweight uh, replica um in for a brand new aluminium bonnet. Uh, so, you know, again, very interesting. If, if, I, if I stood there and counted them, we'd probably count 30, 30 projects from servicing all the way through to full-blown restorations. So it certainly, uh, it certainly makes the weeks fly past. Andy Waters from CBR Classic Restorations. For now, Andy, thanks for helping us once again. Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I continue my chat with Kevin McLeod, a household name, of course, from his nearly 25 years on Channel 4's Grand Designs television programme. And in this concluding part, we talk about car design 
his love of the E-Type, and how he balances his love of classic cars with his promotion of green initiatives and eco-housing. I wonder if there's a synergy between your love of the E-Type and the way that buildings are designed, because in effect, you're designing something that has a function, has a purpose, but human nature always wants to make it better than it needs to be and more beautiful. You know, if we just designed houses to be functional, they'd just be square with a door in the middle and four windows, but we don't do that. And it's the same with cars. We don't just make a box with four wheels. And I think the E-Types sort of embodies that reason for doing things beautifully, but that also the beauty comes out of function as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there are differences, of course, between buildings and cars in as much as buildings have this responsibility to context. They've got to respond to where they are climate and location and building materials and all that kind of stuff because they're big and they're heavy and they weigh hundreds of tons and they've got to stay where they are. But in a way, that's also a bit of a curse. That's a, that's a responsibility that buildings kind of try and free themselves from sometimes. Cars don't have that responsibility. They, they move. So that gives them a tremendous freedom. And interestingly, uh, Le Corbusier wrote a book, the book which kind of changed his reputation really in the late 1920s towards a new architecture and it is full of photographs of machinery. It's full of photographs of airships and planes and trains and lots of cars. He was fascinated by the way in which engineering and car engineering particularly brought to the masses uh, high quality solutions to problems which were beautifully resolved. You think at a time that cars were being built in the 1920s for mass production uh, people were still struggling without vacuum cleaners. That the average home didn't have a single machine in it. Mm. Uh, that mechanical operations were limited to the, the functioning of an earth closet, or uh, you know, if you were lucky, you had running water. Uh, so you, they were like space age vehicles when they first emerged. You know, they were kind of like hypercars hyper of their time. You look back and you see a photograph of a 1920s Mercedes parked outside a. Le Corbusier house, and there are some of those photos, not least in his book, and they look anachronistic. The car looks far too antique for the building because we still build in that very modernist style. We still like it, enjoy it. But actually, at the time, the car was far more sophisticated than the house. There's something else too, which is almost timeless, I think, which is an interesting, I think an interesting observation. That is that, that Vitruvius, who wrote about architecture in the first century AD, he was a Roman architect. He said that all good buildings have the responsibility to, 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 to deliver three things, They're firmness, commodity, and delight. In other words, they should be well-built, well-engineered, properly built. They should be um, ergonomic, easy to use, you know, uh, comfortable, uh, 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 and designed around the human being. Uh, and the third thing is that they should offer you joy and um, and actually, of course, cars, um, cars do all of those. The standard of build is variable, of course. The standard of, um, of comfortableness is variable. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the more the difficult that is, uh, somehow the more challenging it is, the more satisfying it is to wrestle the car and control it. And for that matter, of course, you know, the delight is variable too, depending on how often it breaks down. But, um, but I think there's a huge amount of pleasure and joy. Yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, the aesthetics is, is bound up in that. Vitruvian definition as much as it is in, in streamlining. I think with the E-type, you know, there is with the E-type that, that, that kind of 
that sexiness of the curves, the way the play of light on the gloss, which other cars had, had managed. And uh, Zagato, for example, had been bodying cars throughout the 50s with those kind of very soft curves. And, you know, you could see when they were high gloss how they could reflect the light in a very, very beautiful, sinuous way. It was Enzo Ferrari who, when he saw the E-Type on the stand at the Geneva Motor Show when it was launched, said, um, this is the most beautiful car in the world. There's only one thing wrong with it, and that is it hasn't got a Ferrari badge on it. Yes, yeah. They, they always dubbed it as the car he wished he'd built, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and there are very few cars I think he'd wish he'd built. So uh, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a fluke. It, it, as you say, it evolved out of the C&D type. Um, and I think evolution with Jaguar has been really important in their nature because, you know, you look at, for example, the XJ6, and that's evolved out of the Mark 10. Actually, there are, there, there, there are lines and ideas which kind of keep flowing through the, the DNA of all the vehicles, whether they're saloons or, or sports cars. With, with the E-Type, I think it just reached a kind of perfect pitch, didn't it? It's interesting what you say about the, 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 the mechanical ugliness because when you take the bonnet off the E-Type, it looks hideous, you know? There's nothing beautiful about the space frame. It's purely engineered. It's about stresses and loads. And underneath it, that, 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 that works really well. And they just managed to get that low, wide, and the right size, with the, mated it with the right engine to get that to function well. And then the body is just a, a glorious thing. But then I, I think we sort of do ourselves down in the UK about our body works because we've got a really proud tradition. You know, okay, so it's Italy have got Turing and Pininfarina and Bertone and the list goes on and on. Lots of small body works. We had the same thing going on in the 30s and, uh, you know, Swallow being just one of, of, of many uh, small bodyworks companies that were coachworks companies. Um, uh, Tickford's um, bought by Aston Martin. And we think about the DB4 and 5 Superleggera as being this bodywork designed in, uh, in Italy by um, uh, touring of Milan, but touring gave the license to Aston Martin to do it here. And the, actually the, the two, four Mark three, the car that preceded the Mark three, you call it, um, that preceded the Mark four was designed in the UK. I think by a man called Bert, um, Hapney or Halfpenny or Thickpenny, whatever his name was, yes. you know, proper English bloke with a proper English name, designing the most beautiful streamlined car, actually, in the late 50s. So I, th I think our experience in the Second World War in aircraft manufacturing, producing streamlined um, vehicles to fly through the air at great speed, had a, had a big impact on the, the uh, approach to aerodynamics and car engineering in the 50s. And, and I think Jaguar were right there at the front, weren't they? Yeah. Well, we had a great tradition of small companies making really unique cars on a very small scale here in the UK based on bits they'd taken from mainstream manufacturers. I mean, that is how Jaguar started. They were rebodying standards. It's how MG started. They were rebodying Morris's. And actually, the irony is, in many ways, the Swallow sidecar's name did actually live on well past the Second World War, and that became part of a company called Tube Investments, who in turn made a rebodied version of the Triumph TR2, which was a Swallow Duretti. And this was happening all the time in, in British industry. And, and you're right, we do do ourselves down in the amazing craftsmanship that still existed in there. But 
you know, they were made to a budget as well. These cars were far more affordable than the stuff that was coming in from Italy, you know. Yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, and uh, I think, you know, tax regimes and import duties didn't help. And um, and I think there was also, after the war, there was a great deal of stigma, of course, about buying anything German. My father wouldn't have a German car, um, even in the 60s. Uh, and um, and an Italian car, of course, you know, because the Italian were, were allied with the Germans. So... Um, I think there was a degree of scepticism in the 50s and 60s about, about, about Italian cars. They were exotica and they were beautiful. They were considered unreliable. They were built for the sun, not for the rain. Um, British cars were also not built for the rain. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, uh, that didn't stop us trying. And um, I, I, you're absolutely right about the plethora. I mean, you know, one of the great statuses of my lifetime was as a teenager, as a young man, witnessing the demise of British marks as they became integrated into one hulking business that, first of all, paid those marks a disrespect of just rebadging, you know, a metro or something. Yes, if it was sporty, it was an MG, basically. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, and even Rover, those names just being swallowed up. Um, and in the end, you know, even the disappearance of Leyland, full stop. So... I think that's all about trying to, again, make contact with the, the romantic stories of those small manufacturing companies. Because I think we all like the idea, don't we, of, of you know, 20 blokes in a shed uh, having a go uh, yes. rather than we do, uh, yeah, an enormous company producing 400,000 vehicles a year. It's the great British underdog, isn't it? We love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, as you say, we've also been really good at it, you know, historically. Yeah, yeah it's, it's always fascinated me with cars, how they are a commentary on ways society has moved and how society is changing in attitudes, you know. And you can see that from very early vintage cars that had doors that opened backwards so that your chauffeur could open it for you and not stand in the way of the lady as he, she exited the, the car you know we wouldn't ever dream of doing that now but it's a it's almost like a commentary on how societies move through the eras isn't it do you think we have in the uk as a society an appreciation of design that we should have i think much more so than we used to and i think that um i think again i, I think we may not be confident about our our, our, our statements of confidence in design but um, we are, uh, we're nevertheless a, a nation that has designed and built and done so with enormous um, confidence and panache over the centuries. You know, um, it's hard to think of, uh, of great 18th century architecture that's better than that produced in Britain. Um, it's hard to think of great 19th century Gothic revival stuff, you know, which is more confident than that produced in Britain. Um, so, I, I, and even in the 20th century, we, you know, made our fair contribution to the modernist and, and postmodern story. So, yeah, I mean, in architecture and design, I think we do extremely well. I think we're less, we're less self-conscious about consuming it. So, we, you know, in you know, Denmark and everybody's got, you know, a fashionable, expensive stainless steel pencil and, you know, furniture, which is all kind of beautiful and contemporary and, you know, has got a name attached to it and a designer attached to it. And to an extent, you, I think you can take that a little far, you can become obsessive. Um, yeah, and in Italy too, I mean, you know, the, the Italian exuberance for decoration and design is just, throughout history, has always been kind of eccentric and crazy and mad and, you know, and 
So let's not suggest that, let's not, let's not even suggest that the Italians possess more in the design department. I, th I think they're very exuberant, but actually the, what, what we've been able to demonstrate is that we're able to exercise real control and restraint in the UK in the way that we designed and built and engineered stuff. Of course, there is that great, fantastic three-word phrase to describe British engineering, which my father instilled in me, um, which is work in progress. <laughs> You know, that nothing is ever complete. And because we kind of, we keep, um, we're moving on to the next thing, we're trying to evolve and we're doing it all on sixpence, you know. We don't resolve things in the way that the Germans do. We don't kind of, you know, if you look at the, the at Porsche, for example, I mean, that the story of that company is the story of the evolution of almost one idea. Yes, um, yes. That's it. And um, whereas we kind of range and look and try and experiment and, I think for the UK, that kind of work in progress DNA idea is probably more, more, more important to us. And, and to accept that actually things are not always fully resolved and that they represent a stage in the development of an idea is, is probably um, something that we're pretty good at because we're, we're quite, I think we're, the national character when it comes to design is probably quite accepting of that, of that slightly unresolved nature of it, that slightly kind of give and take quality. Well, I may, I may be wrong about this, but... You know, um, I, look, and I feel as I can talk about Italian design because I, I lived in Italy and I, I know Italy and uh, in, in all its guises. And, um, and so forgive me if anybody disagrees with me who's Italian, but I, I, I find that country uh, just it, it fantastically exhilarating, a little, a little crazy at times, um, very exuberant. And I think that national character comes through in its design, whether it's, you know, for um, Rococo bedheads, still being made in factories, you know, in their dozens, uh, or, or um, you know, uh, Lamborghinis. I would argue the XJ6 is perhaps Jaguar's 911. Generations and generations, it fundamentally looked the same. They really did manage to follow that design through, and that's rare in a car manufacturer now. Actually. It is, it is, it is. They resolved it, they evolved it, they tweaked it, they, you know, but nevertheless, you know, it was, it was a strong enough and and great enough engine for them to carry on using. I've only driven a couple of modern Jaguars, but I still think that there's a sort of, there still is a DNA to that car, which is, you know, a set of values almost, you know, which you see in, in even the modern cars. You feel it driving them. It's been really lovely talking to you, Kevin, about your passion for design and for classic cars. Final question, and I suppose a bit of inspiration for us all in many ways. We do live in very strange times at the moment. The world is changing rapidly, beyond all recognition it feels at times very very quickly indeed. And we are obviously dealing with our impact on the environment and our carbon footprint and how we move forward with that. And anyone else who has watched you on Grand Designs over all of these years will know that you are very, very conscious about the green impact of what you do and the design of buildings and you you know you have a, a great eco awareness if i put it that way how do you balance that with this love of historic cars so um my understanding of uh, the ecological uh well, my appreciation of, of of the ecological needs of this planet and uh, uh, and of our presence on it um, is, a, is a quite a holistic one. And it, 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 I base it on a, a, a thing called One Planet Living. Uh, and One Planet Living is a, an approach to living which respects the need to reduce carbon. 
its objectives are zero carbon, zero waste, you know, some really, really kind of really demanding objectives. Uh, but one of them is, is a, a call for an appreciation of culture and of heritage and of uh, history. And it's, and indeed the conservation movement in building has spent the last 15, 20 years trying to grapple with the idea of sustainability and how it moves to a lower carbon position. And we can apply the same thing to cars too. Of course, if we keep gobbling up the world's resources at the rate we're doing, there's not going to be anything left pretty soon and we leave the world an extremely poorer place and in great danger. And by the same token, if we all simply built an eco-home, not only would that radically trash uh, resources because homes, new homes require great amounts of energy and resources to go into them, but it would also trash the existing. And where we've come from, our history, our, uh, our story, um, the 1920s home that we grew up in, the, the, the 15th century church in our village, um, the, the great monuments that we may have visited, the archaeology, Stonehenge. These, these are part of us. They tell us where we've been and that informs where we're going. Uh, so you, you trash that at your peril. And I'm a great conservationist. I believe actually in conserving as much as possible of the past in order to help us understand who we are. And that applies equally, I think, to objects in our lives. Um, one of my favorite chairs was built in the 1950s. It's next door in my sitting room. It's a, it's a lovely wooden 1950s chair. I'm never going to get rid of that and, and buy a new one. Um, I, cars for me, are, they're part of who I am and my story and my life. To simply go out and buy a new car, of course, has a massive environmental impact in terms of its uh, embedded and embodied energy. Um, to go out and buy a new car as opposed to doing up an old one, even if it's an electric car, uh, has a very big environmental impact. So um, we have to balance the object uh, against how we live our lives. And, it, it, you know, there's no such thing as an eco car or an ego home. It's how we use them that matters. If you build an ego home and then don't live in it, that's, that's a terrible waste. If you, if, you, if you turn up the heating and then control the temperature by opening the windows, that's a terrible waste. doesn't matter what kind of building it is. So with a car, it's the same. You know, uh, what gives me huge pleasure is working with people who are hugely skilled, who, who um, are able to employ apprentices and bring great wisdom and practice and convey the teaching and the learning about this, these amazing pieces of historical engineering. Um, it's, uh, what matters to me is keeping them going so that we don't have to remake them. What matters to me is also sharing the story of them. Uh, and uh, the fact that I might drive 500 miles in a car that's 50 years old, um, in, in one year, it seems to me absolutely infinitesimally unimportant uh, in terms of the global uh, carbon impact uh, of transport generally or of generating fuel, uh, uh, electricity for, for the world. So um, in, the, in the bigger argument, you know, the, the discussion about whether or not you should put in, uh, you should electrify uh, a four-litre car, you know, in order to save the planet is absolutely nuts because the environmental impact of just making the batteries is so huge that uh, it, it negates uh, certainly 500 miles a year driving around on petrol, if probably not several thousand miles driving a year on petrol. Somebody said to me, an environmental campaigner, owning a dog 
is equivalent to driving a 4.2 liter SUV uh, for a year. So whatever choices we make, they always have an impact. And the issue is to do with how informed those choices are. So for me, you know, the, this is a long and big argument, and I'm just about to write an article about it, which is why I'm banging on a bit. But I, <laughs> I, I find the environmental argument with classic cars, in, on the whole, I think, you know, providing we care for them, cherish them, keep the trades alive, craftsmanship going, and don't drive them too much. I think that actually them, their, their contribution is a, gives a net positive to the world, not a negative. Well, that certainly is in line with some of the work that the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs do to try and educate the world on the fact that cars should be considered alongside stately homes as part of our heritage and in the same sort of breath and the same sort of way of thinking and I think that is the way forward and I understand the way forward for you Kevin with your passion for classic cars is you're going to take it on to TV with a new series coming up soon what can you tell us about that well I, I can't because it hasn't been commissioned <laughs> but I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm very much hoping that we can get this organized in the next two or three months um, yeah I can't say anything about it at the moment but it's a very exciting idea and it's actually as much to do with the ideas we've just been talking about about sustainability about uh, apprenticeships craftsmanship and um a narrative the story of things that yeah that's what interests me and i think that it's a different kind of line isn't it really to the kind of standard you know buy it up do it up Vlog it out. Kevin McLeod, thank you so much for joining us here on the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. It's been brilliant talking to a great Jaguar man and a fantastic TV personality and someone that we hope to see more of at events in the future. Thank you, Wayne. It, it brings me great pleasure to be referred to as a great Jaguar man. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. <laughs>